We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. This morning, we are in week two of a series called Gospel Generosity. Gospel generosity. Now, here's what I would tell you. If you're a guest with us, we don't talk about money all the time. You just caught us on a great Sunday. You're, you're welcome. Uh, so glad that uh, you get to be here to be a part of this. What we're walk, navigating through in this series uh, called Gospel Generosity is looking at what it means to live generously in response to the gospel. In response to the gospel. So what is the gospel? The gospel is good news. And bad news. Here's the bad news. The bad news is we were created to be with God, but our sin has separated us from God. And we all have that issue of sin. We all have that issue. That's, we were born with that disease, right? And that has separated us from God. And that sin deserves death. And there's nothing we can do about it to fix it, to fix us, or to make us. There's no thing we can do to restore us back to God. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Because we couldn't get to God, God came to us. Amen? And through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and through the work of the cross, He paid the debt for my sin, a debt He did not owe. And if I, as I put my trust in that, in that finished work of Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary, I am restored back to God, which means this. I move from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. I don't move from bad to good. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about moving from death to life. I move from spiritual poverty to spiritual abundance, and I have new life in him. Paul describes the gospel this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. This is our key verse for this entire series. Here's how Paul describes the gospel. For you know the grace of God, or excuse me, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That's him coming down to us. Why? So that by his poverty, by his coming down, by the cross, by the price that he paid, you might become rich. That is the gospel, and it, is, it has moved us. But let's acknowledge, let's just go ahead and acknowledge the elephant in the room, and that's this. Anytime that we talk about giving or our finances or generosity, we get nervous, right? My grandpa used to say like a slug in a salt factory. We get a little, we get a little antsy, right? Uh, if that one doesn't connect, I heard like, a, like a, a bumblebee and a bug zapper. And so I don't know which one makes you more nervous, but that's just how we get when we come to church and we talk about our finances. And I think we get that way because we believe this conversation is going to lead to a guilt trip where we ask for your money. And so we get nervous about it. 
right? That it's going to somehow lead to us trying to make you feel guilty. But here's what I want you to know. I want us to set that aside right from the beginning. That is not in any way what this series is about. This is not about the church getting your money. Here's why. Because we understand here at New Beginnings that God already owns all things. Amen? Psalm 50, he says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. He says, the earth and its fullness are mine. He said, if I were hungry, I would not tell you because everything in the earth is already mine. That's Psalm chapter 50, verse 10 through 12. So we believe that God already owns it. It already belongs to him. So that if this is not about the church getting your money or us filling some need for God because God has no needs, then what is it about? It is about helping us understand the overwhelming generosity that we have received from God through Jesus Christ. And then being motivated by that generosity that we've received to then live generously toward the mission of God through the church. That's what it's about. And we live generously toward the mission of God through the church because, here's what's important to know, the church is God's plan A for declaring, spreading the gospel, and making disciples. And oh, by the way, there's no plan B. We're it. We're it. We are God's plan A. We are the entity He has created and, and positioned and charged with going and making disciples. We see that in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. We are, the great, we are plan A and there is no plan B. And so it is my heart's desire that as we grow in this uh, area of discipleship, and make no mistake, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, your finances, your possessions, your resources, your time, your talent, your passion, your giftings, and yes, your money, all of that is central to our discipleship. It is central to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And my, my heart's desire is that as we grow in this area of discipleship, that we will find a new joy and a new freedom and a new satisfaction and contentment in what God has entrusted to us. And so that's what the series is about. So with that in mind, I want you to grab your Bible and go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we are going to start in verse 1. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth. This is his second letter to them, and we're going to start in chapter 9, verse 1, and it says this. Now it is superfluous, that's, I think that's thrown in there just in case you hadn't got to say a fun word all day today, you know? Super, <laughs> say superfluous. It's hard for me to say that with a straight face. Let's be serious. Here we go. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as you said you would be. Otherwise, if some of the Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. 
So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Let's just remember for just a moment, and then we'll continue where we are in the text and and what's going on. If you weren't here last week, here's what's happening in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote a letter to the church inviting them and asking them and urging them to be a part of an offering that he was going to take to the church in Jerusalem. And here's why. Because the church in Jerusalem was in great poverty. They were in severe famine. They were under severe oppression from the Roman government. And the believers there were struggling. They were starving. And they needed help. And so this was kind of the mother church. The church in Jerusalem was kind of the mother church to all these other churches in Macedonia and in Corinth and and in Philippi and in Caesarea and in, in Berea and all these places. The church in Jerusalem was the mother church. And now this church is having all of these issues and they're struggling and they're hurting and the believers need encouragement and they need help. And Paul wrote in his letter to 1 Corinthians encouraging this church. The church in Corinth was wealthy and He encouraged them to participate in this offering, and they committed to do it. And now here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul is, one, reminding them of that commitment that they made, encouraging them to keep it and to do that in a timely and generous matter. And he is sending this letter ahead of him with friends, probably Titus and, and Timothy, so that they can go ahead and have the offering ready. And what we're going to read next is some of the most relevant and applicable verses on giving in the entire Bible. So Paul says in verse 5, I'm sending these guys ahead to uh, prepare the gift that you've promised so that it's ready and and it's ready to be taken as a willing gift. Verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor and his righteousness endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, and just through the infinite power of your word, that you would um, speak to us today, God, that um, you would open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts. God, we confess that issues of finances and money are sometimes sticky subjects and touchy subjects. And so, God, I pray you would help us to lean into you and not away. Today, God, I, I am praying that you would make me faithful to your word, that you would hide your church and protect your church from anything that is of my flesh and just magnify what is of you, because that's what we need, God. So would you do that now in Jesus' name? Amen. So Paul is writing this letter. Corinth has said, we want to be a part of this offering, and other churches have said, yes, we want to be a part of the offering, and they have already collected the offering and given it to Paul, and the church in Corinth has kind of 
lagging. They're kind of dragging their feet. And Paul's like, hey, guys, y'all need to come on. As a matter of fact, I'm, it's so urgent at this point. I'm going to send the letter ahead. I'm going to send some brothers ahead. And their job is to help you get it ready so that when I get there, you are ready to give it. And then he starts to unpack what this generosity needs to look like. What is gospel-motivated generosity look like. When I say gospel motivated, what do I mean? I mean a generosity that is born out of the generosity we've received in Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, that's how I want you to give. And here's what it looks like. So as we navigate through these verses, there are three things that I want us to take away, three building blocks, if you will, or three requirements for gospel motivated generosity. Here we go. Here's the first one. It's this, gospel-motivated generosity requires faith. Requires faith. Look at verse 6. Paul says the point is this. Now, I don't know if you've ever read God's Word, read a section of Scripture, looked up, and immediately your first thought was, I wish I knew what the point of that was. <laughs> Anybody else? I've done that. I like it when Paul goes, hey, the point is this. I'm like, Great, now, I'm, now I'm, I'm about to get this. He said the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul uses the illustration of farming to teach them one of the great biblical principles about generosity. And it's this, that God blesses us, listen, in proportion to our blessing of others. That's the, that's the principle Paul is, he's using the, the, he's laying out farming as the illustration, but the principle he's teaching is God's blessing of us is in proportion, it is connected to, it is related to our blessing of others. In other words, what we put into it will affect what? What we get out of it. 100%. You know, Carrie and I lived in the Mississippi Delta for five years. We lived in Greenville, Mississippi, and um, that's the heart of the Delta. And all around Greenville, you could drive for two hours before you got to any real city. You went north, it's two or three hours, you get to Memphis. South, a couple of hours, you get to Jackson. But for a couple of hours, you just drove through farmland. That's all it was. Catfish farms, uh, rice farms, soybean, cotton, corn, very fertile farmland out in the Mississippi Delta. And we had a lot of farmers in our church, so I spent time on these farms. And so what I began to learn is that rhythm that farmers have of sowing and harvesting, sowing, sowing and, and reaping. And here's what I learned, that a farmer would put as much seed into the ground as he could in order to have the largest harvest that he could have. Matter of fact, when it came to the good farmland, they didn't waste farmland on anything except seed for the harvest. So if they built their homes on their land, their homes would often be built in like obscure places, you couldn't see them, or on a completely different plot of land because they did not want to waste any of the fertile farming land for anything other than crops and the harvest. And listen, in those, in those seasons of sowing, when they were putting the seed in the ground, that, those were lean months for, for farmers. Here's why. Because everything, every resource they had, they invested in what they needed in order to put it in the ground. So they bought as much seed as they could buy. 
They, they bought new equipment if they needed it. They, they, they repaired their old equipment. They bought the fertilizer and they made sure that they could irrigate. And they did all of these things, making all of this investment on the front end, living sacrificially. And listen, we learned those rhythms. We learned those seasons. Farmers didn't go on vacation in the sowing season. Why? They didn't have the money to. All their money was going into the ground, right? They didn't buy the extra stuff. They didn't go school shopping. They didn't do those things when it was time to sow because everything went into the ground. But they did that knowing and believing that there was going to be the harvest and that that harvest was directly impacted by what they put in the dirt. And that's the picture Paul is painting. Paul is painting this same picture. So he says, if we're going to sow, if you're going to put something in the ground, then sow bountifully. That's how he tells them to sow. He says, if you sow sparingly, if you just put a few seeds in the dirt, then a few things are going to grow. But if you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. That word bountifully, there's an interesting word. It is the Greek word eulogia, eulogia, which literally means blessing. It's what the word means, but it's where we get our word eulogy. Now think about that for a minute. What is a eulogy in, 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 a, in a memorial service, in a funeral service? The eulogy is that moment where we kind of remember and celebrate the legacy of the person who has passed, right? It's, 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 it's that moment where we remember how they've blessed us and their life of legacy. Paul's using that word to describe the way the church ought to sow in anticipation of the harvest. What is he saying? If you want to sow, or excuse me, if you want to reap a legacy, then sow the legacy. Here's what he's saying. You're going to put it, you're going to get out what you put in. So sow bountifully, sow generously, sow with blessing and with legacy in mind, and that is what you will reap. Well, Matt, what are you saying? You're saying that if we give, we're going to, we're going to have we're, we're going to get rich. Mm-mm. Don't you believe that false doctrine for one minute? There's plenty of that nonsense out there. There's places where you can go and you can have that preached to you, and I'm telling you it is a lie. It is not true. God does not promise that he's going to make you rich on, as, as earthly standards go. He allowed his son to walk this earth as a homeless man. Just keep, just keep that in mind. He doesn't promise you earthly riches. What does he say? He says, if you will sow, there will be a bountiful harvest, meaning you get to participate in something that is going to cause a kingdom harvest. A kingdom harvest. But it requires faith. When the farmer put the seed in the ground, he covered it with dirt in faith, believing that the investment in that seed and in that equipment and in that fertilizer and in that irrigation was going to reap a harvest. So gospel-motivated generosity requires faith. But here's what that faith empowers us to do. Ready? There's two things I want you to see. One, that faith empowers us to sow sacrificially. To sow sacrificially. We talked about this last week. What, what, what is sacrificial giving? What is that? It's giving you feel. It's, it's giving that, that, that cost you something. You remember we talked last week about uh, the widow's might. Remember that story? In Matthew, Jesus was sitting. He was 
watching the people come to the temple and they were all dropping their bags of money into the offering box. And then this very poor widow came through and, and all she had were two copper coins that amounted to one penny. And she, she dropped them in the box. And when she did, Jesus called his disciples over. He said, did you see that? You saw all those money bags, but did you see those, that penny go in the offering box? He said, that's the most important thing that went into that box today. Why? Because it cost her something. Jesus' exact words to his disciples were, that's everything she had to live on. Wow. How do you sow sacrificially? How do you do that? You have to have faith to do that. You have to have faith to believe that God's going to meet you in that sacrifice and supply those needs and, and, and take care of you and, and, and meet you in that place. To sow sacrificially is, is something that is deeper than my flesh. It's deeper than, than um, my convenience. It is, a, it is something I'm going to feel. It's something that's going to that, that's gonna cost. Meaning what? It means there may be things we do without in order to do it. Boy, we don't like that teaching, do we? <laughs> I want to tell you, you don't build churches teaching that. But we're going to teach God's Word, amen? So, what do I want you to know? It's this. Faith-based generosity, which allows you to sow sacrificially, it's going to move us from our standard of living, determining our standard of giving, to watch, our standard of giving, determining our standard of living. What does that mean? It means this. Rather than me having the standard of living that I want, buying everything that I want, doing all of the things that we want to do, and then with what's left, make an offering. Give, us, give sow a seed. Rather than that being the rhythm, what I want to do is determine ahead of time how generous I'm going to be. I want, to, I want it to be sacrificial. I want it to be generous. I want it to feel. I want it to cost me something. And then from there, that will set the standard for how I live. It moves us from our standard of living, determining our standard of giving, to our standard of giving, our standard of generosity, suddenly that sets the precedent for how we live, which means then we begin to say no to things that we don't need so that we can say yes to things that last forever. That's what faith-based, gospel-motivated generosity looks like. It's, it allows us to sow Sacrificially. Here's the second thing I think it does. It allows us to sow expectantly. We can sow with expectation. Listen, when, when a farmer put that seed in the ground, they did not consider the seed lost. They didn't put it in the ground and go, well, never see that again. They didn't consider the seed lost or wasted. And too often, I think we give and we feel it as something we've lost something that we had and needed, and then now we no longer have but still need. <laughs> anybody, anybody? Anybody given and thought, man, that's something I really need, and you give it, and you know, well, I don't have it anymore, but doggone, I sure still need it, right? That's how we tend to sometimes think about this. A farmer didn't approach the seed going into the ground as something lost. He approached it as something sowed, sown, something invested there was expectation. 
And I think Paul is saying in gospel-motivated generosity, we can give generously in faith with expectation. What? That God will turn that seed of generosity into a kingdom harvest. But it takes faith to sow that seed. It takes faith to give sacrificially. But you can do that with expectation, knowing what? That God will use it to build a legacy. Man, I want to be, I want to be a legacy disciple of Jesus Christ. Anybody want to do that with me? Be a legacy disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to come to the end of these days and I want people to shout that I love Jesus, that I love my family, and that I lived generously motivated by the gospel. And there is a legacy of kingdom harvest that you can see in my wake because of it. God, give me that life. Gospel-motivated generosity, it is built on, it requires faith, right? Here's the second thing I think we see. That is gospel-motivated generosity requires heart. Requires heart. Look at verse 7. Paul says, each one must give as he has decided where? In his heart, right? Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Gospel-motivated generosity begins in the heart. It begins in the heart. Paul said it is decided in our heart. So that speaks to our motivations. It speaks to thoughtfulness. It speaks, it speaks to planning. It speaks to our, our generosity coming from more than just something good we're doing. It, it, it's, it's born in that same place where our passion is born and where our affections are born and where those things that drive us like nothing else are born. In that place, it's where Paul says, that's where you have to decide to be generous. Those things that motivate you like nothing else, those things that cause a passion to rise up in you like nothing else, from that place where affection is stirred in you deeply, and that place is where you have to decide to be generous, in that place. It, it, is, it is an overflowing from our hearts, and God's Word is filled with teaching about making sure our hearts are fixed on the right thing, right? Right? Psalm 19, what did David say? He said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of what? My heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lead not on your own understanding. Next, very next chapter in Proverbs 4, he said, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. God's word is literally overflowing with teachings about the importance of keeping our heart fixed on the right thing. Why? Because everything we do as disciples of Jesus Christ is decided there. That's where it's decided, including generosity. Right there. It's born in, in, in that place, which means what? That this kind of generosity is decided long before anything else gets our resources. Now here's where, here's where I think the rubber can start to meet the road for us. Every, when we think about generosity and giving, I always go back to 
the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, right? And so they, they, were, they, would bring, they would bring crops, they would bring offerings, they would bring grains, they would bring animals. They, had, they would bring their sacrifices, their offerings to the Lord. But what offering would they bring? See, they wouldn't harvest for themselves and then with what was left, if it was left, take that to the temple. No, what the farmer would do with his family is he would walk out into the field and he would find the very best of his crop. He would find what was the largest, what was the most appealing to the eye and what he knew was going to taste the best. And he would take that and he would set it aside. And then they would go over to the field where the sheep were and he and his family would look and they would find the sheep that was as perfect as anything they owned. What is what looks the healthiest, most beautiful, obviously the very best of what we have. Great, take that out. And then they would take that and they would go place that as their offering in the temple. What is that? That's in the heart. <laughs> That's down in here. What they were saying is, before our family eats the first fruit of this field, the Lord God is going to get the very best of what we have. And gospel-motivated generosity begins in the heart, which means God does not get the leftovers. He gets the first fruit. He gets that first. And that, that's not, again, <clears throat> that's very difficult to do just out of our flesh, just out of deciding to, to be good. Paul said it isn't decided there. He didn't say, each one of you must give as he has decided in his mind and in his flesh. He said, you must give as you have decided in your heart, in that place where you make decisions that last forever. Right? But I think when we do this, there are two things that are going to happen. When we have generosity that is, that is, that is built on, our, that is born out of our heart, right? There's two things that are going to happen. And here's the first one. When your giving has heart, your giving has life. When your giving has heart, your giving has life. You know, there are two uh, seas, two oceans, if you will, in the Holy Land. There's the Sea of Galilee and there's the Dead Sea. And both of them are fed by the same river. Anybody know what that river is? Which one? The Jordan River. That's right. They're both fed by the Jordan River. So the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee, then it flows into the Dead Sea. Now, the Sea of Galilee is teeming with life. It has all manner of uh, fish and things that are growing in it. The kids are playing on the beach. Crops are nourished from that seed. It is fertile. It is filled with life. And the same river then flows into the Dead Sea. But the Dead Sea is very different. There's nobody playing on the shores of the Dead Sea. There's nothing growing out of it. There's nothing living in it. Matter of fact, if you went to the Dead Sea, you would know immediately why they call it that. There is a fragrance that rises up. There's a smell there. Well, Matt, you just said they're fed with the same river. How, it is that, how is it then that one has life and one does not? And it is this. The, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River flows in to the inlet, but it also has an outlet, meaning there is a perpetual cycle of fresh water coming through and nutrients coming through and fresh life coming through. And, and the, the sea itself is taking the good that it receives and it's giving life to everything around it and then it is sending it on down the river, whereas the Dead Sea has an inlet but no outlet. 
so that all of the good that it receives, when, that, when the Jordan River hits the Dead Sea, it has the same nutrients and the same life and the same thing in it. But when it hits the Dead Sea, here's what happens. It turns stagnant and it decays and things die. Why? Because there's nothing flowing out. Everybody see the picture? God has called us to be disciples, who, to be Sea of Galilee disciples. And too many of us, and when I say us, I mean me because I have confessed to you last week that this is an area where our family struggled in the early years of Carrie and I's marriage to walk in obedience. So I say us, too many of us have allowed the life-giving resources and finances that God has entrusted to us to terminate on us. And we haven't uh, built any means or left any room whereby we can create an outlet and see those things go and become a blessing to someone else. And so we live right to our means, or God help us, above our means. And there's no room to let it flow out. And what happens? The resources come in and the life comes in and then it terminates on us. But church, I want to tell you this morning, the resources and the, the, the wealth that God has entrusted to you is meant to flow through you and not die with you. It is meant to flow through you, not to die with you. He's called us to be Sea of Galilee disciples. I am entrusting you with this wealth. I am trusting you with this life. I'm entrusting you with this resource. That resource may be your home. It may be a skill that you have. It may be a gift of hospitality. It may be, it may be a financial blessing that has kind of uh, caused you to be able to give at a different capacity. But whatever that is has been entrusted to you so that you can see that flow out of you and give life. When your giving has heart, your giving has life. Here's the second thing I want you to see. When your giving has heart, your giving brings joy. It brings joy. Look again at verse 7. Jesus said, you must give as you've decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. Right? Now I want to be honest with you. I want to be that guy. I want to be cheerful giver guy, right? I want to be the guy who gets giddy at the opportunity to give my stuff away. I do. But every time the opportunity comes to give, so I'll still give, but somehow the cheer, I don't know where it went. It just left, right? Anybody, anybody else? Paul said God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. You know, that word cheerful, it, the Greek word there is the word hilaros. It's where we get our word hilarious. Think about that for a minute. You know, when we hear that word, we think something that's funny, something that makes us laugh, something that's silly. When the Corinthian church would have heard the word hilaros, they didn't think silly. What they thought was cheerfully ready. That's what came to mind. Happily approving something that they had said yes to, determined to, and it gave them joy to do it. Paul is saying God loves a cheerfully ready giver. When your giving has heart, your giving brings joy. Right? Why is that? 
Why is Paul saying that God loves it when we have happily determined in our heart to live generously? And I think here's the reason. Because it declares the very nature of God. For you and I to live happily generous, cheerfully generous, it it demonstrates and declares the very nature of God. What do I mean? Our God is a happy, generous God. Do you... Do you believe that your God is a happy, cheerful, joyful God? He is not angry. He loves you. He's filled with love. He's the God of everlasting love. right? He's the God of hope. He's the God of comfort. He, this is who He is. And Paul is saying that when you give that way, it declares His nature. How do I know that? Jesus taught us that. Look at Luke chapter 12, just very quickly. Luke chapter 12, if you want to turn there, you can do that. We'll have it on the screen. But in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is with his disciples and he is teaching them not to be anxious about their life. You know, they, he knows what they're worried about. And he says, I don't want you to be worried about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, where you're going to go, how you're going to, how you're going to make it. He says, don't, don't worry about that stuff. Well, then Jesus, what should we focus on? If it's not that, then what is it? And he says in Luke 12, 31, instead, instead of all those things, seek his kingdom. So, so, so he's so again, shifting us to a kingdom-minded people. And then those things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. If you don't hear anything else I say today, would you hear this next sentence? Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give, give, give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Why? For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. It is your Father's good pleasure. It is His happy. It is, it is His happiness. It is His joy. It is His great joy to generously give you, the kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God. And listen, let's just think about that for a minute. What it is saying is God is happy to generously give to us what cannot be destroyed, what cannot diminish, and what cannot be taken away. It is his happy, generous gift to us. And when we then receive that gift and motivated by it, give that way, we declare, we preach, we shout the generous nature of God. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Why did Paul say it has to be decided in the heart? Because of Luke chapter 12, verse 34. Because wherever my heart is, you can know that's where my treasure is going to be. So Paul says, that's why we fix our eyes on Jesus. That's why our heart is trained on Jesus. That's why you guard your heart above all else, because from it is the wellspring of life, and that's where your treasure is going to be. That's why Solomon said, trust in the Lord with all your heart, because that's where your treasure is. It's why David said in Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's why he said in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast. Why? Because that's where my treasure is. And I need that fixed on you like nothing else. Gospel-motivated generosity requires faith. It requires heart. And if you give from that, it gives life 
and joy. Here's the last thing I want you to see. Gospel-motivated generosity requires grace. Requires grace. Verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency and all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The grace of God abounds to us as we learn to live generously. How do I know that? Because other places in his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul said this, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. And then a little later in this very letter, we're, leading to Second, we're reading to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, uh, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Here's the principle. When you create space in your life to live generously, you create space for God to fill with His grace and demonstrate His sovereignty and sufficiency for you. When you create space to live generously, you create space for God to demonstrate His sufficient grace in your life. If you are in this room and you can think of a moment where God came through for you through sufficient grace, would you just lift your hand? You remember that moment? I want my life filled with those moments. I don't want a life filled with things that were born out of my sufficiency. I want a life filled with the sufficient grace of God. Here's how I do that. I give things away. I give sacrificially. I give through faith from my heart. I give knowing that His grace is going to intersect that. So how do we get there? How do we get there? Pastor Matt, that all sounds amazing. But we're not there, and I don't know how to get from where I am to where you're talking about. The truth is, I know that when, if you're not in a rhythm of giving, when I say something to you like God's Word sets the foundation, the standard, the, the beginning block of generosity at a 10% tithe of your income, I know that for some of you, that makes your ears bleed because you have no idea how to get there. Right? We can be honest. How do you get there? I'm going to give you three quick things on how you get there. Here's the first one. You start small. You start small. If you're not in a rhythm of giving, start small. You know, there's a, uh, back in 1854, there was a bridge that was built over the Niagara River. And it was built between Ontario, Canada, and New York. And, and several miles down the river is the Niagara Falls, very famous. But up, up, the, up the river... They were needing to build an expansion bridge uh, from Ontario to New York. And um, the bridge, uh, the gap was some 850 feet. 850 feet. And the guy who had been charged to build the bridge had no clue how he was going to get the cables from one side to the other. How are we going to get these first cables stretched across this giant gap so I can start to build this bridge? And then he had an idea. And he had a kite flying contest. And so he sent out some mailers in the community, invited kids and teenagers to come and have a kite flying contest. And here was a challenge. If you could fly a kite from the Ontario-Canada side to 850 feet across without your line breaking to the New York side, you would win five U.S. dollars. That's a lot of money in 1854, right? 
you'd win five U.S. dollars. Well, there was a 16-year-old kid who flew his kite, and sure enough, he was able to fly it, that gap, to the other side. And there were people on the other side who waited. They collected his kite, and they pulled it down. And guess what they had now? They had a string from Ontario to New York. And to the end of that string, they tied a slightly larger string, and then they pulled it across. And then to the end of that slightly larger string, they tied a significant rope, and they pulled that across. And then they tied the first cable, which was a small one, but then they pulled the first cable across, and to that cable, they tied the larger cables that they actually needed to build the bridge, and they pulled those across. And, and between 1854 and 1856 was built one of the first expansion bridges in our country over the Niagara River, where locomotives and wagons and all sorts of things were used that weighed thousands of pounds. And where did it begin? It began with a kite string. If you don't know how to get from where you are to where God has called us to be, I dare you to fly a kite string. I dare you to just start somewhere. Set a percentage of your budget. Maybe it isn't 10% right away. Maybe you go, you know what? Maybe we can do 3%. We're going to start at 3 but we're going to give with the full measure of obedience to God in mind. And we're going to fly this kite string. And you're going to create some space for God's grace to intersect. And then you're going to see his faithfulness and his sovereignty and sufficiency. And you're going to go, you know what? We need to move from three to five because God's been faithful to us. And you're going to pull the next rope across. You're going to create more space. You're going to determine there's things in your life that you just flat don't need. And then you're going to go, you know what? We're going to go from five to eight because I just God is being faithful. And you're going to pull the next cable across. And before you know it, you're going to be giving in full obedience to the measure of God, and you've built the bridge. That's how you get there. You start small. Here's the second thing you do. You stay faithful. You stay faithful. Meaning, once you have determined in your heart, remember it's got to be decided in your heart, once you have done that, you stay faithful. It, it, is not, it, it becomes a non-negotiable part of your family's budget. And one other thing that I would encourage you to do, get the whole family involved in it. So parents, if you have kids, you want them to grow up to be generous people, teach them how to be generous. Let them know, hey, this is important. We're going to do without this so that we can give this. Start small. Stay faithful. Here's the last one. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Trust in the God who says, my grace is sufficient for you. And I will make all grace abound to you in all sufficiency, in all things, at all times. That's how, we, that's how we get there. Listen, I know some of this is difficult, and it's hard, and it's challenging, and it can be uncomfortable, but we got to lean into this and not away from it. Amen? We lean into this and not away from it. So here's where we're going to, here's, here's how we're going to wrap up this morning. Here's the, here's the challenge to you. If you have not walked in obedience in this area, go, go fly a kite. <laughs> to quote a movie I went and saw one time, right? Fly that kite string and trust the Lord. And maybe you just need to come this morning, you just need to find a place here at this altar, and you just need to kneel and pray, God, I am doing that, and I'm going to trust you. Maybe this morning you heard that gospel for the first time, that God came down to us through Jesus Christ and saved us and made a way for us to be with him, and you need to put your faith in the work of Jesus Christ for the first time. Come take us by the hand, we would do that. We want to pray for you. We want to pray with you. So whatever it is that you need, um, you come. But my challenge for you this morning is to start somewhere. And if you're giving the 
If that's a part of your family's rhythm, great. So how do you now go to the next level? How do you pull the next cable across? How do you do it? Right? Has God called us to live generous? Yes. Why? Because He is generous. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the power of your word, God, and for the truth of your word. And Father, I am asking right now that in Jesus' name, you would uh, move in this place. God, move among us. Give us a courage to obey. Father, give us a determination in our hearts to walk in obedience to this area. Give us a fresh joy in being generous. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's worship and respond.